0: Philippians chapter 2, I want to begin a a series um, about how we live our Christian lives. The morning messages on habits of righteousness, those are positive habits. What should we do? And the evening messages for the next couple of weeks are going to be, what should we not do? (laughs) What should we avoid? What should we be careful of? And uh, tonight's message is, a principled alternative to American culture. Uh, Whether you recognize it or not, as Christians, we are called to live with a different purpose, different set of goals, different attitude toward life than the people around us that are not Christians. They're going to have their own set of goals and attitudes and they're what they're guided by. We are going to be guided by the Bible, by the Holy Spirit, and we're certainly going to need the power of God's grace in order to live out uh, our goals in life. Here in um, Philippians chapter 2, follow along as I read out loud. Philippians 2.12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, The sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Notice verse 15 here, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, that's a description of us. Here's the description of of our culture, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And because we're blameless and harmless without rebuke in the midst of this crooked and perverse nation, we're going to shine as lights in the world on a, on a bright day. Like we had a beautiful sunshiny day today. If you light a match, people are probably not even going to notice that you have a match because the light from a match is just not that powerful enough. But when it gets dark and uh, it's the new moon, so there is no moon and it's very dark outside. If you light a match, you can see it for some distance. And you know, if you take a powerful flashlight on a dark night and shine it in somebody's eyes, how does the person who has a bright light shine in their eyes feel? Uh, Yeah, blinded, annoyed, angry, right? I mean, it it really bothers people when you shine a light into their eyes on a dark night. Frankly, as Christians, we're going to feel often as if we're shining a, a bright light into people's eyes on a dark night. Not because we're trying to make, annoy people, but because we live by a different set of principles, different set of values than they have, different set of goals, and they're not going to always understand that. So what are some ways as Christians, among whom you shine as lights in the world, it says here in verse 15, what are some ways, some areas in which Christians' lives are going to be different than the people out there because we're Christians and we have a different set of values? I'm going to start with one, and then I'm going to ask you to give me some examples. One way our lives are going to be different is in our speech, how we talk, just how we talk and what we say. Our speech should be free of personal insults. We're not trying to demean people, disparage people. We don't need to say nasty things about people. Our speech should be free, obviously, of blasphemy, taking the Lord's name in vain. That should never, never happen with us. It should be free of vulgarities. There's some kind ways to say things, and some things need to be expressed, true. And then there's just some nasty way to say things. And you have noticed probably how nasty people can be. It's just their everyday speech, they're not even trying to be offensive anymore. They're just, they're just so careless about what they say and what they talk about. Our speech, is, as, as our culture, as the American culture becomes more crooked and more perverse, and we're shining as lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse nation, you're going to notice that the speech of Christians is going to be different than the speech of everyone else. Our goal, should not to not, our goal is not to adopt similar speech habits to the heathen. That's not what God's called us to do. So you're going to see a greater difference in our speech. Where's some other areas where you're going to see a greater difference between Christians— and those who are not Christians in everyday life. Roger. The yeah, they're just their philosophy. Yeah, that's good. Yes, another hand. Warren? Priorities. Yeah, elaborate a little bit. What, kind, what do you mean by priorities? What's the most important thing? What's, what is the thing you want to contribute most of your time. Yeah, where do you want to invest your time? Some of you have children that are involved in sports. And it used to be Sundays were sacrosanct, nobody had sports activities on Sundays. Because obviously people wanted to be in church, but I understand now many sports leagues will occasionally have something on Sundays. And you're going to have to make a decision as a family. Uh, You already have, I I know you, but whether you're going to prioritize the Lord and his worship on Sundays or whether you're going to be part of the the sports goings on on Saturday. And I commend you when you make the Lord your priority. That's, That's what we're going to do. It's going to feel awkward. Your friends are probably going to say, yeah, we go to church too. We just don't go to church when there's a sports event. Well, okay, then it seems to me you've made sports more important than church. It's always interesting to me who misses uh, Sunday evening worship on Super Bowl Sunday. The rest of Sunday nights are here, but Super Bowl Sunday, well, do you know what they're telling me? The Super Bowl and football is more important than worshiping with God's people. And as much as I enjoy watching football, I can I can assure you there's no football game, baseball game, basketball game, hockey game this year, that's more important than meeting with God's people. So priorities. Thank you, Warren. What else is going to be different? Uh, yes, Patty? Response to hmm. Yeah, I like that. Our response to trials. Notice that this passage says without murmurings. Because that's natural. When things get tough, we want to complain. We want to make sure everyone knows how bad we have it. And maybe you have that person at work, you almost hate to talk to them because you invariably know they're going to complain about how bad things are. Don't be that person because, as Christians, we have a different response to the trials in life. Thank you, Patty. Roger, you had another one. Different goals. Yeah, elaborate on that for me. What what kinds of goals are we going to have that are going to be different than their goals? Whoever dies with the most toys. Yes, yes. (laughs) Possessions are not going to mean as much to us. Our lives are not going to be defined by how big of a house we have, or what kind of car we drive, or how many boats we have, or how many vacations we've taken, how many countries we've visited. Uh, now, this morning, Scotty talked to us about an evangelist who visited 150 countries, and so it's not that we can't visit countries, but what are our, our reasons, our goals in life, and, and if it's just to accumulate experiences. I've visited every continent, including Antarctica, then it's different. That, that's not gonna be our, our, our goals in life. How about our marriages? Are our marriages going to be different? If you haven't been paying attention, uh, our culture has redefined marriage. Currently, and I, I mean this with a sincere heart, currently it means two people loving each other. I don't think it will be long before they try to define it as three or four or five or how many ever people love each other. Because once you leave what the Bible teaches, where do you stop? So as as Christians, we're going to find that increasingly our idea that marriage is between one man and one woman for the rest of our lives is, is going to be increasingly bizarre. The whole idea that people should get married before they live together has become disparaged too. But it's still the right thing to do. Young people, young people, don't think that you need to live together before you're married. That's not what the Bible teaches us. God wants us to take marriage seriously. Let me give you another one. How about work? Do you know people that see work as a necessary evil to survive? And if they didn't have to work, they'd rather not. That's not the Christian attitude toward work, right? Six days shalt thou labor, the Bible says. The Bible says that God created Adam and he placed him in the garden to dress it and to keep it. That is, God gave Adam work long before sin came into the picture. And you don't work because you have to. You work because you want your work to bring glory to the Lord. I was talking with a fellow just this week um, and he said it's so hard, not not someone here at our church, but he said it's so hard to find people who want to work. As Christians, we should want to work. Now, not everyone is paid for their work. You mothers do far more work than I do and you don't get paid for it. But you want to work. You want to serve your family. It's not, I wish I didn't have these children. This husband of mine makes so much work for me. Yes, we do make a lot of work husbands, I I admit it. But we want to to see that God can be glorified glorified in our work and not see it as a burden. So that's going to be different. Uh, How about our friendships? For most people, think about the people you know that are not Christians. Maybe work, uh, neighbors, uh, maybe a family, unfortunately. For most people, what is the reason that they make friends and have friends, do you think? Guillermo, you're smiling. You like to talk. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's a good one. You know what I'm going to do for you, Guillermo? I'm going to do what I would do for my high school students. I'm going to repeat the question, and I'm going to patter for a while so that you can think, and then I'm going to come back to you, Okay. Why do you think most people make and develop friendships, the the non-Christians? I I know you have Christian friends, but folks you know that are not Christians, they have friends too. What is the purpose of their friendships? That's the question. Because I am convinced that as we follow the Bible and do what God calls us to do, we're going to approach our friendships differently than the average person. Guillermo, why do you think most non-Christians make friends? Preferably a one- or two-sentence answer. It's a difficult question because it depends on the person and their needs. Oh, stop right there. Depends on the person and their needs. needs. Why are they making friends? They see a personal need they have that they think you can meet, and they're going to be your friend. Most people do that. I'm even tempted to do that. When I walk in the flesh, I make friends based on how they can help me. But for a Christian, how do we see our friendships? Selflessly as a way to serve others. Now I can't be, frankly, I can't be friends with everyone in Vacaville. There are just too many people. But as God calls me to minister to certain people, I intentionally go out of my way to selflessly serve them, even if it doesn't, it'll never do anything for me. Now so many times you notice how God turns that back and he gives back to you, maybe even through someone else when you invest selflessly in someone. But our friendships are not just a matter of what can I get. They're a chance for us to selflessly invest in other people. Now, do you know many non-Christians who see their friendships that way? No, no why would they? They have no biblical basis for what they're doing, so they're just trying to get whatever they can out of their friendships. So do you see how we're going to shine as lights in this world? We live in, a, in the midst of a crooked and perverse world culture, nation. Redefined marriage, selfish friendships, uh, speech that is just depraved, and we're going to be different than that. Now we're not going to be, this is very important that you understand, we're not simply trying to be more conservative. We're not trying to be more conservative. We're trying to be more principled, and the principles are going to be found right here in God's Word. And as we develop in our own spiritual walk and we become more principled and we follow God's word, we will be this way Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, as well as Sunday. You know people, I know people, they put their mask on for Sundays. They come to church and they smile and they talk about spiritual things. But during the week, they're living completely different. I call them Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde Christians. Now, I don't... We don't need to attack them. The truth is they're not walking in the spirit. They're not making principled choices. For whatever reason, they're putting on that mask on Sundays uh, so they can be accepted in their church. And that's it. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde Christians. We want to be principled Christians who do what we do because it's right here in the Word of God. Part of that training about being a principled Christian is to realize that my choices matter. Now, I'm—we're going to. This series is not about choices about things that are clearly defined in God's word. There's a lot of things that are clearly defined in God's word. This is right. This is wrong. Um, we're going to talk in the weeks to come about issues that are not necessarily clearly defined in God's word, and what are the principles that we are. Going to adopt? What are the principles that we're going to follow? What are the foundational principles on which we're going to build our lives? The reason that we want to seek this alternative uh, to the American culture is number one, we love God. Do the heathen love God? (laughs) No, by definition, they don't love God. (laughs) They may love themselves, they may love their country, they may love their family, but they don't love God. And they're going to have a different set of priorities than we do. And secondly, we're going to choose, uh, these, make these choices, choose an alternative manner of living, because we are actively seeking to avoid conforming to this world. And to be tra- And instead, we want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. What passage teaches us to avoid being conformed to the world? Yes, Marcus? Romans 12, 1 and 2. 12, 1 and 2. We're going to not just avoid being conformed to the world, but actively seek to have our mind transformed, by the, by the renewing of, a, of the spirit. So for these reasons, we're going to find that we just, we just have an alternative to the American culture. We're not necessarily pursuing the American dream as it's defined by Americans. As, as um, Roger said, we're not necessarily trying to gather possessions or have some sort of uh, uh, notoriety or fame, notoriety is bad, fame in this world. Now let's go back for a minute here I said that one of the reasons we choose this alternative, this Christian alternative to our uh, American culture, is because we love God. What is the danger, what is the obstacle that keeps us from loving God? I want to point out one obstacle, there's several, but one, and that's in Matthew chapter 24, so hold your place there in Philippians chapter 2 and turn to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 12. And I want you to notice what the Bible says is an obstacle to loving God, and then we're going to talk about what that means for this alternative uh, to the American culture. Matthew 24 and 25, we call this the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is speaking on the Mount of Olives to his disciples. He's telling them about events that take place in the future. Now, where exactly in the future sort of depends on where you're at in these two chapters, but look at what... The principle that's given to us in Matthew 24, 12, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Wax there means to grow colder, right? Because iniquity is going to be bigger, the love of many is going to be smaller. And one of the biggest uh, hindrances, the biggest dangers to your love for God is sin. Remember, the Bible says no man can serve two masters. And if you choose to indulge your flesh and you choose to, to follow uh, the way of sinners, you choose to, to give in to sin, one result of that is you're going to be less in love with God. Your love for God is going to be Diminished. And so some of the, some of the th- choices we make, I know some of the choices that I make, have very little to do with some positive thing. I just don't want to get involved in sin. I just don't want to indulge the flesh so that my love for God is diminished. I want to protect that love for God. Now the result, as we make this choice to, to live Christianly rather than just live culturally, the result is that the world is going to be attracted to the gospel. Matthew 5:12 tells us let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven. Now, the next few verses tell us you're going to be persecuted too. <laughs> but people ought to see by our actions, by our speech, by the way we develop our friendships, by our marriages, by the way we raise our children, by the way we spend our money. They should see that we're different And some, because the Holy Spirit is working on them, are going to be attracted to the gospel because we are different. Now let me, there's going to be a whole lot of rabbit trails. I'm going to try not to go down too many rabbit trails, Guillermo. I'm going to try to stay focused here. But here's rabbit trail number one, that I'm not going to go down very far. Modern evangelicalism has decided to try to infiltrate the culture. They've said, what we need to do is we need to see where America is going, and we need to take those same methods, that same music, that same entertainment, and what we need to do is we need to turn it to God's glory. The, the problem is that that doesn't work, and you can see it. If you don't know much about church history in the United States, you can see it. The world is getting wickeder and wickeder. The answer is not for us to become less wicked than the world. The answer is for us to make a conscious choice to live differently. We want to follow Christ. We want to love God. We want to be led by the Spirit. We want to be empowered by God's grace. So frankly, where the culture is going has very little bearing on what what the choices we make. They're going to do what they're going to do. We're going to make choices based on what the Word of God says. Now here is... Digression number two. Here's rabbit trail number two, and we're going to go down this path a little ways because one of the issues that's quickly going to arise as we talk about some of these uh, issues, as we look at some things that we're going to avoid, is the topic of legalism. Maybe you've even been accused of being a legalist. Now, let me explain to you what the Bible teaches us about legalism. Legalism is my effort to do God's will. Let's think about it in terms of salvation. The problem with human beings is we are sinners, right? We are sinners by birth, and because we are sinners, we sin, we do things that are evil. And legalism says, you know what? I can solve this problem by doing what? Good works, good deeds, keeping God's law. I can solve this problem. Is that a workable system? No. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in His sight. Romans 3, verse 20 tells us, That's legalism when it comes to salvation. I can do this without God's help. But there's also a legalism in sanctification. And frankly, this is what uh, Galatians is talking about. You're in Philippians chapter 2. Turn back just a few pages to Galatians chapter 5. Now, The book of Galatians is written to Christians, right? These people are saved. So when you see Paul, um, uh, uh, um, I was going to say attacking them, that's not quite what he does here. When you see Paul saying to them, stop doing this, he's not saying, stop trying to earn your own salvation. He says to them here in Galatians chapter five, verse one, stand therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, Paul is not suggesting to them that somehow they're going to lose their salvation and become in bondage to sin and not be Christians any longer. That's not the option here. They're Christians, but what they're tempted to do is say, I can achieve my own sanctification without God's help. I I can make up, and and I'm I'm elaborating here for effect, but I can make up my own set of rules, and by keeping my own set of rules, I can make God happy and I can achieve sanctification. The truth is, even after we're saved, we require the grace of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit to do what God asks us to do. So when somebody legalism is simply not being more conservative than someone else. A lot of times in Christian circles, when someone accuses me of being a legalist, what they really mean is you're more conservative than I like to be. That that has nothing to do with legalism. Legalism is when I say I don't need God's help. I can I can sanctify myself, and that's not true either. I can't sanctify myself. There's actually three options though. One is legalism. I can I can do it myself. One is liberty. That's what. Uh, God talks about here in Galatians chapter 5. There's a third path that Christians sometimes take, and that's called license. License is when I say, you know what? It doesn't matter what I do because I'm forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Now, the truth is I am forgiven by the blood of Jesus. But does God care about what I do between now and when I get to heaven? And the answer is yes. We only say that about things that we want to indulge in. I'm a friend of mine. And, and this is one of the issues we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about alcohol. And I can I tell you that you want to abstain from alcohol. That's what you want to do as a Christian. Not because you can do it yourself, right? Not because somehow if I abstain from alcohol, uh, then I earn my way to heaven. That would be legalism. Or I can make myself sanctified. That would be legalism. But because there's nothing good that's going to come out of you drinking alcohol. There isn't. I I have Christian friends that have chosen um, to drink alcohol, and they'll say to me, you know, you're just being a legalist because you don't drink. I I ask them, what good comes out of you drinking alcohol? How are you pleasing God? How is that helping you walk as a Christian? Now, I've seen a lot of bad come out of alcohol, and you have too. It seems to me that the, the brightest, clearest line we can draw is I'm just going to abstain from alcohol, and I'm not going to to, to drink it. Now that is legalism because I need God's grace in order to do that. You need God's grace in order to take that stand for abstinence. And when people who want to, when Christians who want to drink alcohol throw around this term legalism, really what they're saying is I just want to drink. No one would say that about their wife. You know, I think I should be allowed to beat my wife because you're a legalist. You don't beat your wife because you're a legalist. And I'm exaggerating for effect. I understand that. But we only throw this accusation out of legalism when we want to attack someone else who's doing what's right. And we don't want to face what the Word of God says. So I'm not going to be talking about some legalistic, here's the list of things that that I as a pastor want you to do. What I am going to do is give us some principles that we're going to follow for those things that the Bible doesn't speak clearly about. The Bible doesn't say anything about them or says very little about them. How do we make choices when we don't have clear direction from the Lord? Now go back to Philippians chapter two and I'm going to show you the the key word here. I'm going to give you the key word. It's not in the text, but the the concept is in the text. Here in Philippians chapter um, two, verse uh, um, uh, 12, wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If we stopped right there, we didn't read any further. It would make it sound as if there's some work for us to do. But the very next verse says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If we only read that verse, it would look as if God does it all, and I just sort of sit there passively and just allow it to happen. But the truth is, it takes, and here's the word I want you to remember it takes cooperation with God. God wants me to cooperate with the work that He's doing in my life. Cooperation with God. You're going to have, to, if you're going to have a principled approach to living the Christian life, you're going to have to cooperate with God. And that means you're going to have to make choices. Now, let me explain what I'm talking about. And then you come back next week and we'll talk more about some of these principles. Who determines what time you get up tomorrow morning? Now, some of you are going to say, well, my six-month-old baby. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Okay. Let's leave you aside. Let's assume you have children that either are out of the home or they sleep through the night. Who's going to determine what time you get up tomorrow morning? Now, if your Bible reading needs to be in the morning and we've talked about this before if your Bible reading needs to be in the morning but you can't get up in time to do it you get up 15 minutes before you have to leave for work and you throw your clothes on and you jump in the car and you race it down the road to get to work and so you miss your Bible reading tomorrow morning whose fault is that? It's not going to be my fault. Do you want me to come to your house at the appropriate time and bang on the door and say hey get up do your Bible reading you don't want me to do that now, sometimes, and this has happened to me before, God will wake you up in time to do your Bible reading and prayer. And that's always, that's wonderful. But you know what I would do if I were you? I would set an alarm. Seriously. You know, you know, I have to leave for work at seven o'clock in the morning, and if I'm gonna be ready by seven, I've gotta get up at six o'clock or whatever your time schedule, and if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna be ready by seven, that means I have to get up at five o'clock or five thirty in order to get my Bible reading in. Guess who makes that choice. You do. I'm not going to make it for you. Now, maybe if you've got a really good wife, she'll help you, right? But seriously, we've got to make those choices ourselves. We've got to decide whether we're going to cooperate with God or we're not going to cooperate with God. Now, I'll tell you the number one reason why I have trouble getting up in the morning, because I didn't want to go to bed the night before. I find a book I'm reading it's fascinating. I have a game I'm playing. I want to finish it. And so I'll stay up late into the night in order to finish my book, finish my game, do what I want to do. And then I'm so tired in the morning, I can't get up and spend time with God. Whose fault is that? What's well, Marcus's fault. I mean, it's never my fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my kid's fault. No, listen, seriously, if you're going to get up in time in the morning in order to have your time with God before you go to work, that means you have to make the choice to go to bed at the right time the night before. That's where you cooperate with God. God is far more concerned about you doing right than you are. God isn't going to stand in your way and prevent you from going to bed tonight so you can't get up in the next morning, so you can't read. Now, I know everyone has their story about how the fire alarm goes off at 1130 at night and wakes the whole family up and everyone's in a pandemonium and you don't get back to sleep until two in the morning. Yes, there are nights like that. I, I understand that. God understands that we're dust and that things happen. But most nights, you make a choice when you go to bed. Most mornings, you make the choice when you get up. Most mornings, you make the choice. What, most days, you make the choice whether you spend time with God or not. You're either going to cooperate with God or you're going to actively work against him. And if we're going to be principled Christians, we want to cooperate with God. God, what are you doing in my life? It is God, which worketh in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. God, what are you trying to do in my life? Now, Father, what do I need to do to cooperate with what you're doing in my life? And I use this example of getting up in the morning because it's usually for most of us men. Now, you ladies, it's a little bit different, especially if you have children in the house. But for most of us men, it's on us whether we have our time with God each day. It's not, it's not anyone else's fault. It's my fault. When I don't have time with God, it's, I, I would like to blame my kids. I'd like to blame my cats. But the truth is, it's my fault. So here's my question. Are you cooperating with God? Every devotional discipline that I have mentioned so far on Sunday morning, prayer. Prayer requires that you cooperate with God. You're not going to, you're not ever going to become a prayer warrior in your own strength and in your own power. You need the leading of the Holy Spirit and the empowering of God's grace in order to pray as you ought. So the question is, are you cooperating with God? Meditation. Meditation requires the leading of the Holy Spirit and the empowering of God's grace in order to meditate on scripture and to get something out of it. By the way, I got to share this with you. Yesterday, I was out and about with one of you and one of you said to me, what did you get out of your meditation on Philippians 1.6 this week? I was, I was so glad you asked me because I need to be held accountable just as much as any of us. Now, this week's verse, and I haven't even looked at it yet, uh, there it is, is, Second Chronicles 7.14, right here in, in, uh, in, in your, in your uh, bulletin. I encourage us to meditate on God's Word. But meditation on God's Word isn't a legalistic thing either, where I say, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do it X number of times, or I'm going to meditate for X number of minutes, and somehow that makes me a better Christian. No. Meditation on God's Word is, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. But His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law doth He meditate day and night. It's going to be because I enjoy God and I enjoy His Word that I'm going to spend time thinking about it. But I have to choose to cooperate, because I could spend all week busy, distracted, other things come up, and come to Friday night, Saturday night, and have not even spent any time meditating on God's Word. You have to cooperate with God. Sanctification, sanctification requires God's grace, the leading of the Holy Spirit. your choices require God's grace and the leading of the Holy Spirit. So if we're going to have speech that is different than the people around us, we need God's grace and the leading of the Holy Spirit. If you're going to look forward to your work, if you're going to eagerly do your work to glorify God and to do it in a Christian manner that brings Him honor and glory, it's going to require the leading of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. If you're going to have a family, if you're going to do marriage right, if you're going to be faithful to your spouse, not just in your, in your actions, but in your thoughts and in your attitudes, you're going to need the leading of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. All of the things we mentioned, if we're going to have different goals, if we're going to have different priorities, if we're going to have different philosophy of life. All of that doesn't come out of some training that I'm going to give you. It doesn't come out of us trying harder. That's legalism. It comes out of me saying, I need God's help and I need God's grace, but I'm going to cooperate with him and make the choices that I need to make in order to accomplish his will. So in the weeks to come, we're going to be just looking at the principles that help us get there. So what do we do with alcohol? And what do we do with Tobacco. And what do we do with our taxes? Actually, the taxes are pretty clear. So many issues that we're going to face as Christians that aren't uh, mentioned in the Bible, but that God cares deeply about. And we're going to have to make choices. We're going to have to cooperate Him with Him. What are the principles that we're going to follow? This was just the, the foundational message in this. So as I come to the end, let me bring it home. Let me give you the application. Do you realize that your choices matter to God? Are you cooperating with Him, or are you actively working against Him in what He's trying to accomplish in your life? Because your choices do matter. Now, God gives us all the grace we need. His Holy Spirit is always ready to lead us, but we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench Him and never get to the point He wants us to be at, because frankly, we're not paying attention. We're not making the right choices. And then second, this type of principled living requires a love for God and a commitment to Him. Because it's our love for God that's going to motivate us to serve God, that's going to motivate us to live principled lives, even when the people around us are crooked and perverse. There, you're not going to find encouragement, most of you are not going to find encouragement from going to work. You're not going to have coworkers that encourage you to be careful about your speech and To work hard to God's glory and to make your marriage all God wants it to be. You're not going to find that, are you? In fact, they're probably going to actively work against you. And you're going to have to decide that you love God more than you love our culture. The mistake I think many American Christians are making is they're trying to follow the culture and somehow hold on to God too. And they're becoming increasingly divergent. And so we're, we're caught in the middle and it's like we're sitting on a fence and it's a barbed wire fence and that's really uncomfortable. You'd be better just getting off the fence and deciding that you're just going to follow the culture or get off the fence and decide you're going to follow the Lord because you can't do both effectively. When, when um, Jesus in, in, in Revelation 3, he cri- criticizes the Laodicean church, he said, I, I were that you were hot or cold because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And as Christians, with a culture that is increasingly perverse and increasingly distant from God, we've just got to let them go their way. I don't mean let them go their way. I don't mean by that we don't preach the gospel. We do preach the gospel. But we don't need to chase after them trying to find ways to infiltrate the culture. We need to be distinctively Christian and make choices that please the Lord and let the culture notice that somebody is shining a bright light into their eyes. Father, uh, thank you for this evening, for this morning, for the guests that you brought out to be with us this morning. And I ask that the gospel that was preached this morning would be a bright light to them, that you would take the seeds that are sown and cause them to grow. I pray for us. We live in a wicked and perverse nation, and it's just getting worse all the time. And Father, we want to cooperate with you, we want to make choices that bring honor and that bring glory to you. We want to cooperate with what you're doing in our lives to make us the friends we ought to be, to control our speech, to have marriages that are blessed, marriages that represent that relationship, symbolize that relationship between Christ and the church, We want to have a church that's joyful in the midst of trials and and tribulations. We don't want to be murmurers and complainers. So we're going to need your help, Father. We don't want to be legalists about this. We're not trying to make up new rules. We want to follow what you have called us to do. We want to cooperate with what you're doing in our lives. So lead us, Father. Help us to make those daily choices about what time we go to bed and what time we get up and what we take time to read. For these uh, mothers with children just constantly bombarded with demands on their time, give them wisdom to carve out time each day to spend with you. And Lord, help each one of us to grow in our faith as we walk with you day by day. Shake us out of our apathy. Help us to see where we've gone astray and we've made excuses for our flesh And help us to choose to live, to walk in the Spirit. And to stand fast in that liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. Lord, we love you. and We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.